Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so that you can create those products that your customers will love. This is my fourth in a series on a product management body of knowledge I'm doing every other week. We are exploring the Product Development and Management Associations, that's PDMA, their guide to the body of knowledge for product managers and innovators. If you're unfamiliar with PDMA, they are the longest-running volunteer-led professional association for product managers, existing since 1976, and I discovered them in, what, 2006, and they really helped me understand the body of knowledge. We started this series in episode 307, with an introduction to the BOC, and then explored strategy in episode 309, portfolio management in 311, development processes in 313, and now we are discussing design and development tools. These are the tools that are used in a product process to move from idea to a market-ready product. Our guest is Carlos Rodriguez, who is an associate professor of marketing and quantitative methods, and he's also the director for the Center for the Study of Innovation Management in the College of Business at Delaware State University. He recently published a book, Product Design and Innovation, Analytics for Decision-Making. And remember, as you hear the discussion, if there's anything you want to go back to, we take detailed notes for you. We also create a one-page PDF to help you take action on any of the ideas that you hear. You'll find all those resources at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 315. I hope you go there and check it out. Now, let's talk with Carlos. Carlos, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Well, thank you so much, Chad, for the uh, kind invitation to share my thoughts with uh, your audience, particularly on the topic that I embrace very much, which is tools and techniques in the product design process. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad you are. And indeed, you have spent a lot of time in uh, the last year or so contributing to that topic, specifically to the PDMA body of knowledge. So we're continuing on in our series. And you wrote the chapter, as you mentioned, Product Development so that's actually product design and development tools, right, is the name of the chapter. Give, give us a sense of what the purpose of that chapter is in the body of knowledge. Well, the main purpose of the chapter, Chad, is to guide product designers, product developers, marketing, and in general, innovation managers towards selecting the most important and relevant tools and techniques that we have today available to mm-hmm. guide them from the ideation process through the development of the concept, to prototyping, and get ready to launch that product to the marketplace. So it's an evolution of all the different techniques and tools that they can incorporate in that process that has been already very much tested in others at the front of what we are developing in the area of tooling and techniques. Yeah, I like the new focus. In the, the previous edition of the Body of Knowledge, we had tools and metrics, and I'm glad to see that kind of separated and, and tools given more attention. And, and I, I tend to be a, kind of a tool guy. I, I like using different tools. The ideation tools I particularly gravitate to, but the, there's several different categories of tools to help one do the design and development of a product. And when we say product, we extend that to services too, right? We, we generically say product as something that is tangible, we can touch, or intangible, like a service. 
service. And the collection of tools works across many different areas. I'd like to kind of go through just some of these categories, and we won't get through all the tools by any means, but maybe you can highlight some of your favorites, and we'll discuss those briefly. The, the first category is ideation tools. W- what are some tools in there that you could highlight for us? Well, as you have mentioned, Chad, the ideation process is critical in the product development process. In fact, as we all know, given several studies and surveys done by PDMA and others, that's where we concentrate most of our investments. So it makes a lot of sense to kind of uh, grab the most important and relevant tools. For me, the favorites are probably three of those that, uh, and I probably will put them in this sequence, if I may. Uh, The first one is storyboarding. Uh, this technique focuses on the development uh, of a story about the consumer's use and experience with a specific product and a service. It allows us to understand all the problems they face and the challenges in trying to connect initially with this particular product and the experience. Mm-hmm. A second technique that I like very much, and I think is very much insightful, a little more from the ethnographic side, is the day in the life of a customer. Mm. These methods really focuses on the routines, the behaviors, and the circumstances that users face in interacting with the product. So it allows us to observe very much behavior in real and natural settings. And that's why, again, in product ideation, we have to move very much into this ethnographic close to the consumer, be a native, and try to absorb their experiences and interpret them. So it, this is a technique that allows us for the interpretation of what's happening when the consumer interacts with the product. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, my other favorite technique, which is very, I would believe today, very much implemented, is journey maps. Mm-hmm. And journey maps recently have become a little of the, the focus of scrutiny because we tend to think that these journey maps were only just the sequential description of actions and behaviors in interactions between uh, the staff or the delivery point and the consumer and identify these touch points. But which is interesting, today we have data that shows us that measuring the journey at the end of the cycle may not be a good indicator of really what the experience have proved to be to the consumer. We may need to do certain measurements along the process. For those reasons, I think journey maps is one of the interesting tools that we have in the ideation process. Yeah, all, all three of those kind of have a similar purpose, which is understanding the customer more. And I've had the pleasure of using all three with customers in, in the past. And, you know, the, the storyboarding is kind of like the, you know, cartoon, you know, diagram, right? And it's just a way yeah. of, of telling what's going on with the customer through through a quick sketch. I like that very much. Stay in the life is kind of putting yourself in their shoes and understanding what their experience is. And the journey map gives us more context, right? It's kind of what was going on maybe many days, weeks, even you know years before they made a purchasing decision, if that's what we're examining, you know, all the way through that and their experience with our product or service and afterwards as well. And, and kind of looking at what's happening with them directly and then what's happening to them. I use the term backstage. I know others do too, you know, but what's kind of going on behind the environment with them. Really good tools. In passing, you mentioned ethnography, which I just have to highlight because it is one of my favorite go-tos, uh, just because it's so stinking effective, right? We, I, I, my experience and others is we just find insights that we might miss otherwise when we actually observe customers in their environment. Absolutely. And I think you've been pointing to one of the areas where most probably uh, most managers 
have not yet had the experience and the training necessary. Sometimes it's a technique that, again, as you know very well, we borrow that from the anthropology kind of a, mm-hmm. uh, field, and, and we still are having a little hard time trying to absorb it and understand it and implement it. And my thoughts are when we're in the ideation process is that we all are ethnographers by design. We have to be ethnographers by design before even we start conceptualizing. So I definitely agree with you that that's one of the very important orientations and training that all our product managers uh, should have at certain point. Yeah, thank you for sharing those. I know there's other tools in there. The, the, the tools that you highlighted also stress that we're not just asking the customer what they want. We're trying to deeply understand what they what they do want, but understanding their problem, their situation, the job they want to get done. Good tools. Okay, next category is called concept design tools. Tell us what that one's about and, and maybe some favorite tools in there as well. Well, the concept design tools, that section relates to how do we move from trying to identify those latent needs that exist in the consumer through the voice of those customers, through the different methods we've spoken, and try to give a little more form, a little more content. So we move to this concept design to get a more round idea of what exactly will be that initial proposition to the consumer. And there are interesting methods there. I have a couple of those that are for my favorites. The first one relates to concept engineering. And concept engineering was developed many years ago by the Center of Quality Management in conjunction with different member companies and the MIT Concept Engineering Design Lab. And they came up with this particular method that really starts with identifying those voices from the customer, but translating them in what we call customer requirements. What exactly is what the customer is asking us? This technique avoids one typical mistake that we do when we are going through this uh, development process, which is trying to find a solution. And we tend to see this as a problem-solving process. And at the initial stages, we really need to understand what's happening with the consumer and define this concept. So these concept engineering technique and methods are very, very useful to translate those voices into customer requirements. Now, within that, uh, one of my favorite, absolutely, is the Cano method. In the Cano method, I'm so glad that industry has started to accept it more as a formal method. In fact, we even have developed uh, software infrastructure that allows us to implement this in, in companies and organizations. In the Cano method, one of the important contributions, I think, conceptually, is the fact that We in the past have tend to think that products only provide positive satisfaction, Mm -hmm. only the positives and the goods. But let's be realistic. As consumers, we buy products that not all the time we're satisfied with everything we have. We like part of it, but we dislike other parts of it. There are many times attributes and functions that we provide that are the consumer is indifferent to those. Now, keep in mind that over-designing implies increasing costs. And that is not something we want to do from an initial stage. So the Canon method really helped us kind of clarify which attributes are important, which are not, which are critical. And it's going to be very important, the input to one of the further methods that we probably talk about a little in the discussion here, which is the quality function deployment. It it Hmm. is the feeding mechanism to quality function deployment. So that's one of the methods that I... I really like very much uh, mm-hmm. in conjunction with our concept engineering methods. 
You can help me with this because I'm sure you've looked into more. I've heard it pronounced canoe, cano, and I think some other ways. Is canoe the, the what what you hear most? Yes, canoe okay. is that the, the the way I hear it. And sometimes okay. I even have heard it the the, the, the cano method, right? Uh, which is more emphasizing each of the words. But again, there are different different labels that we have used to it and in forms to call it. I think it's a very useful method. I remember when I first came. Across this model, just it, it, there were good aha moments for me, right? Because it really says that there's a level of quality that customers care about, and as you in quality, you might think of as specific attributes or just how much the attributes delivered in some form. And once you get above that level, we don't care anymore, right? The customer doesn't care. Why waste resources trying to make that better? And at the same time, there's some fat attributes that are distractors, and, and actually, you pursue those, and you're you're eroding the value of the product. And all this kind of comes into that realm of, you know, how do we go about selecting the, the features to create the benefits that the customer really cares about and not focusing on those that don't provide real value and certainly not focusing on those that are distractors in the end. And something important I'd like to add to what you said, Chad, is the fact that sometimes, especially when you are dealing with products that are heavy on technology, you tend to believe that giving more to the customer is better. Mm-hmm. We tend to have that mentality of giving more. And, and, we yeah, have and, and software, we call it gold plating, right? We, we, we make something better because we can. Exactly. And, and a kind of method allows us to make one, among others, like you have mentioned, but one basic distinction. What are the must-haves? What is mm-hmm. what the product has to have to determine its inner intrinsic value that consumers will consider it? After that, as you mentioned, we add other elements that improve the perception of quality. But it also helps us clarify. Now, why is that so important, uh, at least from my perspective, is because that that must-have basic function is the one that determines the cost of the product. And that's what we can optimize today Mm. and, of course, improve. And many times is the source of differentiation. Let's don't forget that. I mean, the case of Pioneer, Sound, we, we never thought that sound could be improved because we're used to hear things in, in a natural setting, but sound can be improved. And, and, and what is that pure and real sound? It's just redefining the basics. That is what the consumer is looking for. So Cano allows us to identify what is priority. Now, in addition to that, let's, let's add to this that Cano initially in the model, and maybe that was the reason why several years ago was not yet adopted, it became some kind of qualitative slash quantitative method, mm-hmm. but today has been improved to have more robust tests that are more statistical. And I believe this is the moment where we as managers have to adopt this method because it really gave us the qualitative and the confirmation, the robustness mm-hmm. on the quantitative side. So I think that's important. That's very good. It helps us know what to focus on, what features to go after, and what level of quality we need. We'll keep talking with Carlos in just a moment, but I want to tell you more about this PDMA body of knowledge. It's a comprehensive framework for understanding the full breadth of product management and innovation. I used it to significantly improve my product work. It was great when I discovered this. Then I created a system for helping organizations do the same to get value from it. It's called the Rapid Product Master Experience, the RPM Experience. It takes place as a nine-week journey, meeting virtually for 75 minutes a week. 
I take groups of product managers and leaders in organizations on this journey, building a common understanding of product management knowledge, and in the process, improving collaboration, going much deeper with each other, and renewing or even maybe at times building a new customer focus, making sure we're delivering value to the customer, and maybe not just talking in our own, own engineering speak at times or you know taking our eyes off the customer. Many organizations have improved their product managers and product teams' performance using this RPM system. Recently, in a lessons learned session with a group, every participant said they would recommend the experience to their colleagues. Participants are recommending it because the RPM experience not only helps them create better value for customers, it helps them accelerate their careers too. It is a win-win for the organization and for the participants. To learn more, please go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Now, let's get back with Carlos. Another category, moving on from concept design tools, is embodiment tools. Tell us about that and, uh, again, a, a favorite tool or two of yours. Embodiment design, again, is moving the designer to the next stage of the process, which is going from the basic concept definition, which we should have clear. For example, if we apply the Kano method, and we continue developing to consider some more technical and more economic criteria in the process. My favorite techniques and tools in this, this stage are functional analysis. Now, functional analysis is a technique that originally was designed by Charles, by the way, a uh, Florida engineer many years ago, an industrial engineer who thought, well, as engineers, we need to be conscious about the functions that products will perform or the services that will perform. But he add to that the fact that when we are getting into the analysis, the economics and the technical aspect of the design, we need to understand what exactly are the functions. Now, one of the interesting benefits of this function analysis technique is that essentially it draws a map of all the functions that define a product. And it's an interesting source uh, for communication also with other colleagues from different disciplines. Let's not forget that the new product development process, its success is due to the cross-functionality that you bring into the design itself. So function analysis allows others to provide different points of view and very important, directs the attention to where the designer should put the energy in terms of correcting functions, improving functions, making them better, more accessible, or even look for a better interfaces with the consumer. So that's one of my uh, really favorite techniques, if I may, in that particular category. In addition, you have complementing function analysis. You have fast diagrams. In uh, the one that is very pertinent to us is the technical fast diagram that allows us also to set the boundaries of the product. Let's keep in mind that the product is like a microsystem of different functions of different types. And we can approach this from a systems perspective, try to define exactly the boundaries of the product and the interaction with consumers. So in combination, function analysis and fast diagrams becomes a very powerful tool for design at this stage. And so we're moving on from, you know, initially an ideation, our understanding of what the customer's problem is, what, what their unmet needs are, through to coming up with a concept around what might, might be a solution for, for the answering those needs, for the job they want to get done. Now starting to build kind of boundaries around what, the, what this design would look like for a product. Exactly. We are, we are moving towards shaping it better. Taking care of the basics, functionality, and design, and so forth. 
So that brings us to the next category, which uh, in the chapter is initial design specifications. Tell us about that and again, some tools. In the design specification, we are, are trying to move a little more into that quantification of all the specific requirements that consumers are looking for. And in this particular category, I have specific techniques that I like very much. And these are essentially looking to be sure the product satisfies expectations to different constituents of, of the design itself. Let's, let's be very clear. The design doesn't belong to the designer. The design belongs to the team that is supporting all that new product development process. So we have design for functionality. We have design for production, being sure that all the elements can be very well manipulated and processed in the production and manufacturing stage. We look for the assemble element of those, very important, because those imply costs of manufacturing and operations. Generally, designers used not to think about this because it was the prerogative of the engineering department. But uh, today's in this integration, when we are designing, we have to think about how to incorporate these, these elements that are important to them. Design for maintenance, something that customers are always asking for because we're moving towards a market where consumers really want to maintain their own products in many ways. So they want to be participative of the process uh, for products that obviously are, are accessible to them. And a couple of other orientations in design that have become very critical in my my thinking is that it's going to be more and more to the future is the design for recycling and the design for usability. Very important in a world where we are more conscious, consumers are more conscious about the environment and so forth. They are selecting products that really are consistent with their values. And, and some of these you know, methods and tools are going to help very much to this process. Mm -hmm. So those are my favorites within this category. Okay. So again, we're starting to think about making the product more real and what that means and different design aspects to make that happen in some sense throughout its life cycle, right? From right. bringing it into existence, manufacturing, maintenance, and then uh, what happens uh, on the other end of that potentially for recycling reusability. The next category goes, I assume, even deeper because it's called detailed design and specification. Well, the detailed design specification, as you indicated, we're going now to the, to the details, to the particular features and specifications that are important. Now, one of the important things to understand, I believe, from a design perspective, is that we need to translate this to other colleagues in the process. And uh, I believe that this stage uh, of detailed design allows us to connect particularly with the engineering part of it. And one of my favorite tools, of course, uh, very well known in use, developed many years by Professor Akao, is quality function deployment mm. in its different forms. And it not only allows us to bring what we discussed before, the knowledge that comes from the Cano method and the customer requirements, but also is going to connect with the technical requirements and specifications. It's going to allow to translate the language of the voice of the customer through requirements to the language of the technical uh, an engineering team that is going to figure out what are the different forms we can satisfy those requirements. But at the same time, that quality function deployment allows for a competitive analysis with other products in the marketplace within that product category that may be competing with us. So it allows also to uh, kind of define our competitive space in a more tight way 
And at the same time, add, of course, what will be the cost of making these modifications if they are real? Because, again, we have to be very realistic. New product development process is not an open budget process. We usually have limitations that we have or constraints, as we like to indicate. And I think quality function deployment allows for that. Another of the techniques that I really value very much, and I think is going to be more and more important, not only in products, but in services and connected with other techniques, for example, the journey map, is emotional design. Mm. Um, I'm getting to the conclusion, and others, I believe, before me, that it, it is not important what the product can do for me, which is the functionality view. It is how the product makes me feel about myself when I use it. I've, that is essentially speaking about all the affective elements that really are created in the connection between the product and the user. And emotional design allows us to think about very carefully what are the emotions we're going to design as part connected with that functionality, that usability, that kind of interaction with the user. And one of the interesting methods within that is the Kansai engineering method. And this method I developed some years ago didn't have much weight. We used not to think about how emotions are going to be important in the detailed stage of the product design. And this method, what it does is really goes to, if you will, is the precursor of sentimental analysis, trying to analyze the wording and the meaning of words to consumers and how those trigger specific emotions. Today, with the assistance of the discoveries in neuroscience and artificial intelligence, we can program these emotions. And we can design them in a more thorough way in different aspects of the form, the functionality of the product, the shape, colors, form, and so forth. So that technique, can say engineering, is, uh, again, one of my favorites because I, we are moving to that level of detail and design where consumers are connecting emotionally. Mm-hmm. Let's keep in mind, our job as designers is to build an emotional relationship, a human relationship between the product, the service, and the consumer. And can say methods allow us to get a little closer to uh, nurture that type of relationship. It's an important aspect of design. My background is engineering, and I, I won't, certainly won't speak for all engineers, but I, I think I generally have been eager to uh, get to solving the problem and solve it in a practical, maybe even an elegant way, because that just feels good. And not always think about that emotional connection. And when we look at the, 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 there's a thing called the value pyramid. I forget who originally created that, maybe Bain and Co., but you know, the, the different elements that contribute to value. When we get to the emotional aspects, they're so much more powerful than the actual functional aspects of a product, as you indicated, Absolutely. right? And we need people that are wired and trained to appreciate that, right? We need the designers to think through that further. There's a reason why there's some emotional response when I open up a new Apple product just because they have thought through that experience so very well. And the, the box comes off with just the right amount of resistance to make it smooth. And it's such a pleasant experience to open it up. And now many products are like that because Apple showed that that matters, right, to, to consumers. And, and just the whole, what goes into that emotional experience is important. And the words that we use associated with it and learning from our customers, the words they use too, to relate to products. And if I may add, Chad, something that we're still learning to work better, going back to the connection uh, in the context of services, mainly with journey maps, we yet haven't 
apply specific measurements during the journey map in terms of emotions. We know there are emotions that we create. We call, we try to associate those with touch points that are very relevant, very critical. But again, I think you, 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 you frame it very well. We tend to go and, and see a problem and solve the problem while we should be looking at the context of it. What is what brings a consumer into a specific touch point? What is the type of feelings that they mm-hmm. have as a result of certain emotions? How we dilute those emotions towards what we want to do? So if a customer enters a touch point feeling insecure, for example, and that's a feeling that they have due to certain emotions happened before, then the job of that touch point is not just to interact, it is to reshape content so that individual comes out for that touch point feeling different, right. feeling you know that that level of security has increased. So the key question is, and this is a question for us to think about in terms of services, how do we shape that interaction? Who shapes that interaction? Usually is the contact person in that interaction line. But how even that implies to think, well, how are we going to train these staff individuals that are in contact with consumers to be able to shape up this new feeling? Because essentially, that's what we want. And again, go back to the notion that that implies measuring these emotions along the different stages in steps that managers decide are critical in this journey map. Yeah, I think such a good example of that is the the MRI being used on kids, right? And and for anyone that wants, we'll talk about this maybe some other time, but for anyone that wants to go look it up, look up Doug Dietz MRI. He, he was the GE engineer for 20 years that was so proud of his work creating the MRIs and, you know, making things better until he found out kids were crying, walking to the MRI machine. It was a very traumatic experience and using a customer journey map tool to really reshape those emotions to make this a fun, engaging experience instead. It's just such a great example. So. Absolutely. Okay. And there's one last category, except if I miss some, something along the way here. The last category is fabrication and assembly. So this deals more you know, with manufacturing products, it sounds like. But tell us a uh, big picture. What's, what is that and uh, a tool or two that you like there? We are moving to the last stage of the process in terms of design. We need to create those prototypes. And of course, there are different types of prototyping techniques that we could use. For me, there are three that are, I think, very interesting that we should consider at this stage. The first one is the functional prototyping. Because uh, let's be very clear, if products do not satisfy functions, either basic functions or secondary functions, uh, consumers are not going to acquire them. So they have to have a decent level of confirmation that those functions are really being not only effective, but robust, and they are doing the job. So that's important. A second one that I think is interesting is to do the prototyping aspect from an experience perspective. And that takes a little more time because we have to go through the experience itself of the product, you know, using the product, assembling the product, maybe maintaining the product, adjusting the product. There are different stages there. And all those points, uh, going back to our previous discussion, they could be very critical points, emotionally speaking, and may create some dissatisfactions upfront when they haven't even yet use the product. So we have to prevent those elements. And the third one, which again, I think it becomes, it will become much more important and it is in many ways today, is a design for sustainability. Mm. And sustainability has become a very critical issue from a consumer perspective, but also from the manufacturing, from the generation of the product or the service. So we have different 
frameworks that we could use. Unfortunately, we don't have yet very concrete, robust measures, very quantitative as we have in other stages. We have more listing of criteria that we think we should fulfill. And uh, the body of knowledge makes an interesting presentation on the chapter of the different criteria that we should be using when we think about sustainability. But the idea, of course, is to think about the sustainability from a product in the service design perspective. It's also important to look that from the improvement perspective, what are the elements that we can absolutely adjust. We also analyze sustainability from the material design and the ecology of that through the MDF framework. So there are different frameworks that allow us to ask. And finally, uh, a tool that is being used today that I think we, we encourage more designers and product managers to use is the Product Sustainability Index, which again is a consolidation of different criteria of different angles of what sustainability should be and has shown to be very effective. We have several studies that have shown that this analytical method even is mainly qualitative. It's effective mm-hmm. to really determine how sustainable maybe this this design during this process of the new product development. Thank you for taking us through fabrication assembly briefly. So we covered all the categories uh, in this chapter on product design and development tools. I wasn't quite sure we'd have time to get through them all. In each case, there's many more tools we have not explored. And obviously, there's more depth on the tools that we did talk about in that chapter as well. We were bantering just a little bit before we started recording about the PDMA body of knowledge and that we're both very happy with where it stands right now. And also, it's by no means perfect. And I think that's true for any body of knowledge, right? When I did project management with with PMI, you know, their body of knowledge, like we would expect, it's a guide to the body of knowledge that's available. It's not all inclusive, but this is such a great collection of tools in this chapter to really help product managers think in some structured ways about how do we go from customer idea problem all the way through to a complete product and you put that in the context of the other elements of the body of knowledge, and it really, really the framework starts coming together and it really enlarges your view of product management. And that's one reason why we're talking, because I highly recommend this. Product managers need to get their hands on this body of knowledge. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes. What did you bring for us? And tell us what, what that means to you. Well, Chad, I have two of my favorites. Obviously, there are many great innovation codes from excellent uh, colleagues in the field. But for me, too, that really guide and drive my work every day in my thinking. And I'm going to go take your audience a little, a little many years ago, okay, past to the time of Albert Einstein, when he, quote, we can solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we use when we create them. And I think it's very relevant because as designers, we love to see things from different frameworks, from different perspectives. We cannot always apply the same logic as we define problems or identify needs as we try to find solutions. So our job is to move around constantly in a 360-degree perspective to see things from other angles. So I take this quote as supporting that. And my second quote is a little more recent from one of the greatest designers that we have on Apple, which is uh, Jonathan Ivey, Industrial Engineer by Training. And I'm going to read it carefully because it's a very interesting quote. He says, simplicity is not the absence of clutter. That's a consequence of simplicity. 
Simplicity is somehow essentially describing the purpose in place of an object and product. The absence of clutter is just a clutter-free product that's not simple. And I like to summarize this quote by saying, when we design, let's design for simplicity. Mm -hmm. Simplicity is elegance. Simplicity is functionality. Simplicity is effectiveness. And I believe that's what consumers are looking for. So those are the two of my favorite uh, quotes that I can share with you and your audience. From the past to the present. The Albert Einstein quote is also one of my favorites. And it reminds me, too, when we're, when we're looking at solving customers' problems, we need to not only understand the problem deeply, but sometimes think differently, yeah. get out our own way. And there are a lot of ideation tools that we did not discuss that are in that chapter that help with that, right? They, they help us think differently, like Scamper and Six Thinking Hats and, you know, th things that help us just reframe our normal thinking. Absolutely. I agree with you. This has been excellent. I've really enjoyed the discussion, the information that you've shared with our listeners. For people that want to find out more about the work that you do, resources you may have available, what, what are the avenues for this? Well, first of all, Chad, I appreciate the opportunity to share with your audience the latest developments in the area of tools and techniques from product design, especially to awaken the urgency for all managers to really get involved and learn more about these techniques. And the body of knowledge is a great source for that, as you very nicely have uh, described, especially considering an important fact that more than 70% of the total budget of new product development initiatives is concentrated on the first two stages of the process, which is the ideation stage and coming up with the concept in a product concept that is solid and we can take further into the new product development process. So it is to our own convenience as managers to look very carefully into these techniques and the body of knowledge is important to that. So let me highlight that. A second source that I think is important and I'd like to share this with your audience is the K-Hub, which is the Product Development Management Knowledge Hub under the Product Development Management Association website. I really encourage uh, your audience to get a hold of that. Uh, we have done an excellent job and directed by Susan Burek, our K-Hub administrator. She has been able to organize all the knowledge base in different sections. So if managers are interested in different areas of the body of knowledge, particularly the tools and techniques, they can enter into that particular site and benefit from different articles, discussions, blogs, and particularly many opinions and experiences that many managers are sharing with the audience. I think that will absolutely benefit all of us. Other sources that I may suggest, uh, I recently published uh, a book on product design and innovation, analytics for decision-making. This book is, if you would, expansion of all the tools and techniques that we need and that some of which we have discussed in this podcast. And I think it will be an interesting source. It's being written for the uh, manager and from the perspective of the manager that needs to make decisions in which tools to use in which stages of the process. There are many examples and applications, real actual applications of what industry has been doing in this regard. So it's a very interesting, easy way to grab all these techniques, absorb them, understand the logic, and then, of course, implement them in their particular industries. And finally, um, I... Uh, I'm the director of the Center for the Study of Innovation Management in the College of Business at Delaware State University. We have our own website, which I invite all of you to uh, log on. We share a lot of information. Our job is to promote as many others and kind of uh, educate and, and nurture the development of the small businesses in medium size, particularly in our region. But of course, that's open and an invitation to all your audience if they would like to log on into our 
Center for the Study of Innovation Studies at, in the College of Business at Delaware State University. And I will make sure, Carlos, that all the links to those resources are in the show notes to make those easy to find. PDMA K-Hub is a free resource. You can get a membership in PDMA and get access to other resources, but the, the Knowledge Hub is a free resource for anyone to go to. So the link for that would be available to your book and to the university work that you do as well. Carlos, thank you for your time and taking us through these tools. Well, Chad, it's been a pleasure to share with you and your audience. I wish you the very best, and I hope that our discussion illuminates most of us on the work we need to do as product and designers. There are still many developments, and I hope that in the near future we'll have the opportunity to chat about new and other techniques that still are coming. This is an evolving field, as we all know. So again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to talking again. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Carlos at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 315. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.